Welcome back, listeners, to another bonus episode of Art Curious, featuring an interview with someone in the art world. And recently, we have been focusing on amazing authors who have been writing about artists and art history. And today, I am so excited to bring you an interview that I recently did via Zoom with John Higgs about his recent book, William Blake versus the World. Poet, artist, and visionary, William Blake is an archetypal misunderstood genius. His life passed without recognition, and he worked without reward, often mocked, dismissed, and misinterpreted. Yet from his ignoble end in a pauper's grave, Blake now occupies a unique position as an artist who unites and attracts people from all corners of society, a rare, inclusive symbol of human identity. In William Blake versus the World, we return to a world of riots, revolutions, and radicals, discussed movements from the levelers of the 16th century to the psychedelic counterculture of the 1960s, and explore the latest discoveries in neurobiology, quantum physics, and comparative religion. With 30 integrated illustrations throughout the book, William Blake versus the World is a beautiful, wild adventure into unfamiliar territory, and John Higgs places the bewildering eccentricities of a most singular artist into fascinating context. And although the journey begins with us trying to understand Blake, we will ultimately discover that it is Blake who helps us to understand ourselves. So please enjoy this conversation with author John Higgs. John Higgs, thank you so much for joining me on Art Curious today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jennifer. Lovely to talk to you. Very lovely to talk to you as well. Now, one of the things that I aim to do with Art Curious is that I like to share stories about art, artists, art history in general, with an audience that I hope is comprised of both art lovers and art, who I call art newbies. So people who are not necessarily knowing a lot. Exactly. So they might not have a lot of basis in art. All of that being said, Blake is certainly someone whose name I've known as a, a big name in art history, but I think he's still an unfamiliar name to many. So can you give us a quick background, quick is probably in quotations here, to his life and give us a little bit of background about him as an artist? Sure, absolutely. I think Blake is one of those people that people have heard of, but they don't feel that they know or they can get to know. He's too strange. He's too much of an enigma. There's often a sense that he's a bit... um guarded that people don't have permission to dive into his worldview and things like that so the the curious is very much who this book is is written for for those unfamiliar with him william blake was a londoner he was born in 1757 and lived until 1827 he's seen as a sort of proto-romantic he's seen just a bit ahead of that sort of curve but he was um he was extraordinary for a lot of ways number one is that he was equally as talented as a painter and an engraver and a watercolorer, as he was a poet and a writer, to the extent that he's in the canon for both of these in a way that nobody at all else is. You just don't have people who are seen as a a, a genius from from through the centuries as a painter and a writer. It's almost like his, his creative inspiration, it comes from above these crafts and it's all pours through. It's odd and extraordinary. They feed into each other in a really wonderful way. The other thing about him is he had visions. He had visions throughout his entire life, from when he was a small boy up until when he was an old man. And his art is a way of sort of expressing these visions, showing the world in a way that will believe him. Because there is some strange quality 
about his work, particularly in a lot of his paintings, where you look at them and you go, oh, okay, oh, I believe him now. There is, this comes from somewhere else. There is, there's, there's a otherworldly sort of quality to them that's wonderful. So he works as a figure who gives almost like, he, he gives certainty to the concept of transcendence. He makes it all very real. And he's a figure who was very much ignored during his lifetime. Or if he wasn't ignored, he was mocked or derided. And he died penniless in a pauper's grave. And it, on some level, it seemed like the world had defeated him. He had one exhibition in his entire life, one solo exhibition. And it was, it was above his brother's shop. And they sold no paintings at all. Uh, and the one review referred to him as a, a lunatic. It, it went very badly career-wise. But 200 years later... He's one of the most important papers, certainly for an English person, one of the most important artists. Just before the pandemic, there was a huge um, retrospective of his work at Tate Britain. And it was it was massive and wonderful. And there's room after room. There's about 300 works. And it sold out a quarter of a million tickets. You know, so he's one of our biggest artistic enigmas who's come from nothing into, to the person we're talking about now. I had a couple of different... Uh... Other artists who were floating through my mind while I was reading your book and talking about this sensation of him not being very well known or respected during his lifetime, only having that one exhibition that you talked about, remind me a little bit of the narrative or the myth that we tell ourselves about Vincent van Gogh, for example. Yes, where very much so. Yes. Very much so. So it's um, that person who's very much just not understood. Do you get that sensation as well? <laughs> Yes, there is a difference. With Vincent van Gogh, people are very happy to talk about his mental health issues. Yes. With Blake, there's been a sort of tendency to, to go, he's, he's not mad, there's, there's depth here, which can, which is true. There is depth there, but it, it can, um, it's, it's only now we're starting to look at him from those sort of angles, because uh, he had very difficult periods that he went through. Earlier, Jennifer, we were talking about how cats invade Zoom uh, calls. And I, <laughs> yes. I must apologize if you're hearing any strange noises because I've cursed myself. Oh, and, no. And the little fella has turned up after scratching at the door. So apologies for that. No worries. Mine is currently at my feet purring rather loudly, which is something that she does not seem to do unless I am on Zoom. <laughs> so we are in the boat together. The mm. other person that I was thinking about a little bit while I was reading and learning more about Blake was Leonardo da Vinci, because I was thinking about mm. the poems intermingling with sketches and drawings. And I wanted to know a little bit more about your thoughts about him as an artist and as a poet. How did he merge those two? Because I got the sensation for sure, as you were speaking mm. earlier, but also throughout the book, that they were not separate, that he seemed to really live those modes simultaneously. Did Absolutely. He... Creativity just poured out of him and he just couldn't stop working. I've written a thing comparing him to print, which may, for a lot of people, sound blasphemous. A lot of people be really think I'm belittling Blake by referring him to Prince, but there's a lot of similarities, not least that Prince said that angels cured him of his epilepsy as a child. They saw visions of angels, but that need to keep working. Prince had an engineer on staff 24 hours a day at his Paisley Park thing, and he'd just go in and create and make the music and then just put it in the vault and create more music and create more music and just put it in the vault. And we've still not heard all of this. It's, it was made for the sake of making it. 
It was between the artist and the spirits, essentially. It exists in eternity, and the fact that no one else has heard it is irrelevant. And Blake had this similar need. It was an absolute need to create. So it would come out in these different ways as, as art, as painting, probably as music as well, though we've lost the music. Wow. Things like songs since his, po- his poems were songs. Oh, my um, goodness. I love yeah, that. Yeah, it's just a glorious outpouring. It's uh, And it's constant. And, the amount, considering how much of his work was burnt after he died, there was, a, there was an incident called the, the Tatum Holocaust, where a guy called Frederick Tatum had inherited a lot of his work by his Blake's wife. And he became very religious and became convinced that the work was the work of the devil. And we don't know how much was lost, how many notebooks, how many poems, how many paintings that just went up in this great fire. Considering how much we still have, it's quite it becomes overwhelming to realise just he just worked. That's his life. He just worked and worked and produced and produced and needed to. That was that was what life was about for him, the imagination being expressed. I love that. I wanted to know a little bit, going really to the beginning of your book, I want to talk about the title. I want to talk about mm. William Blake versus the world. I love the title so much. And yeah. I wanted to see if you could share with my listeners, could you tell us a little bit about what 18th, late 18th, early 19th century Britain was like? So what was this world in which Blake was living and working and playing as a whole? And how was he working against that in some ways or, or living in a different realm comparatively? Yeah, these were revolutionary times, particularly the 1790s, particularly the French Revolution just happening just right. over the channel. Yes. Uh, and that made the British establishment terrifying. They thought it was going to happen. Their heads would be rolling and things like that. So there's a real sort of clamp down, clamp down on, on press, clamp down on sedition. It was, it was a very paranoid time. And there was a belief that uh, Napoleon was going to invade. So the mm. country was on war alert and anything seemed that seemed anti the monarchy. Was, was risky, it was really risky. And in fact, Blake was uh, tried for sedition himself after an incident when he was living on the South Coast and he found this soldier in his garden. He marched the soldier out to his barracks and the soldier said all the while he was damning the king. Um, and there was a big trial and Blake could have lost his life in that. He, was, he got off, although it does sound like the sort of things he would have been saying. It did sound like his politics. He, was, he, he mixed in... Um, in a very radical scene, he's, there was a publisher called Joseph Johnson who had these sort of lunch gatherings with people like Tom Paine uh, and Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women. These yes. were very cutting edge thinkers of the time. So Blake was in this sort of world. But at the same time, he was a little bit divorced from it. He wasn't um, political in a party political way. He was furious about justice and about suffering and he was very political on that sort of level. But these dinners that Joseph Johnson would have, people would come to debate and to decide how things should be, what the world was like, and all this sort of thing. Didn't need to join in these things. He just knew. Blake was fully formed from the off. He, his worldview was fed by this, these visions he'd been having from childhood. He felt in no need to try and work out how the world was, how it should be won, or in, or convince people of his viewpoint to engage in, in debate or anything like that. He just simply knew, and as far as he uh, could tell, what was required of him was just to just grow the imagination, just to, to produce the work, just to, to make the pictures, to produce the books, to, to write the poetry. That's how to, to create the better world. That's how to turn London into Jerusalem. It's the overwhelming power of the imagination 
And he's not, he's often seen or put together with the romantics. Yes. And the romantics were very, they're often very upper class and, and they, they may have been wealthy. And they, you, you imagine them sort of lying on a chaise lounge or smoking opium and with a feather quill writing this poetry from the muses and things like that. Blake was from much more uh, working class grafter and he was an engraver. He was a printer and his was the world of, of metal and acid and sort of physical labor. That's how, that's how he was trying to create a better world through his art. I am so glad that you mentioned his engravings, his work, because I wanted to see if you could walk us through his art making process a little bit. I was especially interested in learning that he referred to some of his work sometimes as fresco, which I thought was really fun because it's not the fresco that most of us are familiar with, as in painting something on a wall and it becomes engraved, not engraved, but sort of permanently situated in the wall. How did he create these works that he referred to as frescoes? Yeah, uh, he did use that word inaccurately. And he wasn't sent to school, although he did do some time in, in an art school. So he should maybe have picked up on on words like frescoes. But he, he, tra- he trained in engraving. And there was a lot of different techniques, but one which he claimed uh, his late brother, who had died, had given him this, inspired him into this new way of combining text and imagery in the same printing system, which would have been revolution, which was revolutionary. But it, di- it did require him to write everything backwards and so he just learned how to write everything backwards do mirror handwriting now this is not a skill that a lot of people have and hence his particular technique never really took off but he would he would paint in varnish on like copper plates uh and then put acid on to corrode the the parts of the plate that weren't covered with this special special varnish which would then be raised so that would become a sort of a way to print and some of the ways that he combined words and pictures together was so revolutionary for the time and now in a world of comics and graphic novels and and things like that we take it for granted the the idea that you could combine like a story and a poem and and and, and visuals at the same time but it's interesting that if you look at say the blake society the patrons of the blake society are people like alan moore and neil gaiman people from the, the the world of comics and graphic novels really resonate with they really get him they really understand what he was trying to do yeah yeah so there's a lot of a lot of hand coloring a lot of watercolors on on, on top of all these there was a kind of a punk diy aspect to <laughs> do him he, he was setting it up so he would do he was able to produce his work where he wrote it he drew it he illustrated it he engraved it he printed it he painted it he bound it and hopefully would go on to sell it without requiring all the other companies and, and publishers and people involved in the other writers had to engage. So what we get is very pure. Yeah, it's very yes. pure, Blake. There was no gatekeepers or editors going, I'd wind that back if I were you, Bill. You know, it's, <laughs> it's gone, gone a bit far there, mate. This is getting a bit ridiculous. You know, we get this um, unfiltered uh, sense of his work, which I, I think... I speak for many Blakeians when we say we're delighted that's the case. I totally agree. And one of the things that I loved that I really didn't know until reading your book and getting more of a sense of that process was that hand made element that you're talking about, that he would go Mm. back and add the watercolor atop the actual engravings, that he was mixing these medium, which was really fascinating. But I love that because I think there's so much of a debate sometimes over printmaking 
and the idea that perhaps some people think that a print, if there, if it exists in multiples, it's not a single work of art. It's mm-hmm. a sort of an antiquated debate that hopefully a lot of people don't necessarily buy into now. But I yeah. love that all of his prints then, they, they all have this unique element to it because Definitely. he goes they back. They vary quite, quite a lot. And he would, and particular images, he would go back to again and again over decades. So we may have, I don't know, say 10 versions of a particular image. And in the, the 1780s, 1790s, there, the watercolours, dainty is probably not the word, but the pastel and the pretty as was well the thing. But as he moves forward into the 1800s, the reds get richer and the blacks get deeper and it becomes more sort of gothic and melodramatic. And, and it's the same image, yes. but they've painted it in a different way, so it has a different uh, atmosphere to it. I love that. I think that's incredible. I think the work that I was most familiar with just in my extremely cursory studies as an undergraduate art history student and then later as a graduate art history student, it was really just uh, some of the work from the Songs of Innocence and Experience. So I was more familiar with those lighter, lighter touches. Now, it's it's very much the gateway drug in these yes. songs of innocence and experience. They 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 don't have all the characters of his mythology that he develops in his larger works that, that sort of came out, particularly in the eighteen hundreds. So it's accessible. It seems accessible, but at the same time, it, it's only hinting at, at the the riches to come. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and more. For me, burnout manifests itself in days where all I want to do is lie in bed and watch Netflix. Does that ever happen to you? I usually associate burnout with work, but that is not always the only cause. Any of the roles in our lives can lead us to feel burnt out, and BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone who can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life is important. I used BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and it was nice to be able to begin talking via phone and chatting right away. There was no waiting, no traveling, no sitting awkwardly in an office. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and like me, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours to get going as soon as possible. So give it a try. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Art Curious Podcast listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Art Curious. I begin my day every day with a cup of wonderful coffee. But actually, I need to back it up further because I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning before my first cup of coffee. Longtime listeners know that my health is important to me, and I do what I can to optimize my health and energy. But traditional vitamins, in pill form, are no fun, and they kind of bore me. I wanted something that tasted good and kept me going. So what is AG1? 
With one delicious scoop of AG1 from Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports everything from your gut health to your nervous system, your energy, focus, aging, and recovery all the things. It is great. And now my family keeps asking if they can have their own serving of AG1 in the morning. Athletic Greens is the one thing with all the best things. It uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover, and it cost him over $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to have an optimal nutrition routine all on your own. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the opinions of others, because Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It is time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It is just one scoop in a cup of water every day, and that is it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com artcurious. Again, that is athleticgreens.com artcurious to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time. And over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. I'm glad you mentioned the mythology as well. Could you please, especially for listeners who don't know a lot about his visions and his outlook in terms of religion or belief system, could you tell us a little bit more about Blake's theology and how that played into his works? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's at the heart of everything. It's, it's a it's big a question, big, I know. And it's fascinating because uh, most artists of, of his era, they would they would use Greek mythology or they yes. would use biblical things, which are shared, shared narrative stories. People would get the reference. You'd include Mars. People would know what that meant. Sort of mm-hmm. thing. But they, the world that they are set up to describe wasn't how Blake saw the world. And he had no choice but to create... A, a mythology of his own, people it with these these own characters, and this was about a century before Freud and before Jung and people and people like that. So there was no field of a psychiatry or psychotherapy or, or or modern ways of understanding the brain, because what Blake's mythology is different aspects of the mind clashing. He personifies aspects of us and puts them together to to see what happens. He's very 
fascinated by the dynamics between different aspects of our own psyches, of his psyche as well as ours. So he, for an important part of it is, is what he calls the four zoas. He divided the mind into sort of four different aspects, one of which the, the rational part of the mind, the sort of the left brain, the part of our mind that's to do with law and how things are and what the future will be in the past and builds a model of the world that we must obey. He called this character Eurism. He's a very uh, fascinating character and many of his works will be about how Eurism is clashing with the with creative impulse, which would be a stoner or uh, a version of them called Lost. All these names may sound strange and weird if people aren't familiar with them. And it's a shame because it would be a much better world if we did know these references. We know all the details of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we know that <laughs> we know centuries of the Game of Thrones continent and we can handle mythology. We're good at mythology. Yes. We could get on our minds around Blake's, I believe. And if they were a sort of common cultural touchstone, where you could say to people, oh, yeah, that's Eurism talking, and they know what you mean. I think it'd be really useful because it's, the insights in Blake are great. They're, they're really good, the way he understands what it is to, uh, to be human and how he, how he elevates what it is to be human. Yeah. Do you think that's changing? Do you think that maybe there is, I'm talking especially about that huge exhibition that was at the Tate before lockdown. Do you feel like that's changing in acceptance of his beliefs as well as his work or his output? Possibly. The impression I got from that that massive retrospective is people coming out of it overwhelmed. Mm. Um, They'd seen so much, but they still didn't understand what it was. And there was nothing explaining it. And there wasn't really a way in and I think there's a history of of Blakeians of people being very protective of it and thinking they have the one true version of Blake in their mind and they're very quick to attack anyone who sees him differently but the the thing with Blake is so rich and he's so complex that everybody does have a different version of him it depends what you're interested in if your interests are political or artistic or literary or sexual or radical or revolutionary or mystical or magical or whatever they are, you will find aspects of that in Blake. Then those particular aspects will speak to you. So Blakeians have to have this lovely thing where we all accept that everyone's version of Blake is different, but they're all valid and they're all interesting and they're all and we can learn from other people just to get to see more and more of this this incredibly sort of complex mind and although there's a few that, that have the belief that that this fundamentalist belief that, that there's the one true version and that they know it mm. a lot of blake criticizes that attitude for him that's he calls that eurozone turning into his dragon form this belief that you have the right truth he, he saw this this terrible cause of so much evil in in the world and so much unhappiness in in the world yeah so basically what i'm hoping to do with this book is just to get as many people feeling that they're allowed engage with blake see blake on their own sort of levels it's i think it's the first book about blake that's not from an academic university press for about 25 years since peter ackroyd's biography which is odd because there's been lots of wonderful books written on academic presses and there's a lot of great work going on there. But people generally, people outside of that world find a, a sort of a little bit off. Hence yeah. the title of the book you mentioned, William Blake versus <laughs> the World. It's, it doesn't even have a subtitle. Right. It's very much coming at that sort of populist sort of angle. That's the hope for it anyway. 
What do you think is Blake's legacy? I think I find it so interesting. Uh, You've alluded to it, but definitely it's part of the larger conversation and in your book in general, speaking about how he's come more into being a prominent artist. How did that development happen? I was really fascinated to learn that he was so beloved by the pre-Raphaelites. I've been reading about Mm -hmm. the pre-Raphaelites recently, so they're fresh in my mind. But then it seems like maybe it was the counterculture in the 1960s that really popped Mm -hmm. him back into the forefront. Is that true? Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. That's certainly a big aspect of it. Although it's been quite a journey the past 200 years of Blake's reputation and and people's awareness of him. For people like the pre-Raphaelites and and the Romantics before them, there was part of that they got that people at the time didn't get. And it was was this belief that there was something more important than just the rational part of our minds, that that the rational part of us was only a small part of what we were. And that if we dismissed the the arrest of consciousness, we were making ourselves uh, smaller, smaller than what humanity should be. Because he was working at the time of the age of enlightenment, essentially. And, yes. and to, to boil that down um, as simply as possible, it's, it was the time when people moved away from the belief that faith was primary, that faith was the primary way of understanding the world into the belief that rationality was primary, that, mm. that using our intellects and logic, that was the way we understood the world. And that fed into the Industrial Revolution and, and the birth of the modern world and, and where we are now. Blake was quite happy moving away from faith, but he saw that the rational was to, was diminishing us, was really diminishing us. There was, there was much more to us than that. And the imagination in particular was is often dismissed as a sort of trivial thing. Oh, he's just imagined it. It's not, it's not real. For Blake, the imagination was the divine part of the universe. This was, it was what made us numinous. It was what made the world more than just a sort of closed, finite, material, meaningless nothing. That the, the imagination um, it was Jesus as he saw it. He thought he was a Christian, but he thought that, that Jesus was the imagination. That was the, the divine entering the, the physical world uh, and transforming it. And so that's, you know, that aspect of him was what the romantics really latched onto and what the pre-Raphaelites and what the, certainly the, the, the 60s counterculture and, and before with Allen Ginsberg and Aldous Huxley and, and, and people like that. There's another side of him, particularly here in England, where he has come to represent this sort of English mysticism that is very inclusive and hence very valuable to us at the, the t- at the time being you know his his words to the hymn jerusalem are the unofficial english national anthem there isn't officially an english national anthem but everybody knows it's jerusalem and it's sung by people on the right and people on the left and it's it's sung at uh, big establishments or to you know flag wavings things but it's sung by punk folk singers and it's sung by cricket teams it's sung by the women's institute it's it really unites the whole sort of country in in a really important way so that's an aspect of him that over here in england is very important he's the aspect of englishness that we want to move to it's about being better it's a you know all when he talks about seeing london as jerusalem as the sort of holy divine city it's not as rah rah we're great it's (laughs) but we can be better And that is the sort of promise of Blake is important, I think, to us now. 
That I think was that was going to be my question. We to wrap up our talk was I was going to ask why William Blake and why now and what does he mean specifically for you? But I think you've partially answered the question in that wonderful wrap up about Jerusalem. Is there anything yeah. else? What does he mean for you personally? As I think I said at the very beginning, he's, he offers the certainty there's more than just the sort of, as I say, in that sort of meaningless material finite sort of closed world that uh, that in you know this these very secular times we can cling to without i mean if we're wrapping up i can't even begin to go into his sort of spiritual or, or sort of religious beliefs other than to say that they can that they work for atheists as well as committed christians or, or people of other religions it's he sidestepped a lot of the dualism and the and the problems of dividing the world up into these way into into quite an extraordinary way. If we had another half hour, Jennifer, I would bore you to tears with because I, <laughs> I can feel <laughs> it. Was, I, I can feel it. It would not be boring at all because I find this <laughs> fascinating, and I wish we could talk for another hour. But unfortunately, I'm running out of time on Zoom. I'll I'll cut this part out. But just letting you getting why of the free version of Zoom. So. It's rather annoying. Oh, yes, I'm getting I'm getting running out in six minutes. <laughs> yes. So I'm so sorry about that. No, but I am loving this. And I'm you've really ex- I, I think you've really opened my eyes to Blake, because as I mentioned, I only really knew just the very, very minimum about his work of art. I seriously mm. I knew his name. And I, of course, as far as his poetry is concerned, I think I only really knew the tiger, which I think is sure. probably very common among a lot of very American common. Yeah, very readers. Common. Yeah, he, he feels a lot like an American Walt Whitman. Ooh, I like that. I never thought about that comparison, but that makes some sense to me. Yeah, and in, in where he fits in British society to how Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman fits into American society. Yes, that, that sort of. Um, that homegrown mystic. Yes. If there was one work of art or one poem or both that you would recommend to someone who is very new to Blake, what would you mm. suggest? Oh, new to Blake. That's a very uh, good question. There's the obvious images that are just so striking, like the Ancient of Days, which is this, yes. this figure leaning out of this glowing ball and formless void and the winds of this formless vo- void are whipping his his beard and his hair off to the left, and he's leaning forward with these golden compasses, creating the sort of finite, limited world. And it's such a striking image. And especially for the, the time it was made at. You see that and you go, oof, some, this is interesting. This is something here. But the, the thing I, I think most people, I'd love it if most people would try to read uh, is The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Oh, yeah. Which is a fairly short book that basically lays out the way he sees the world uh, more than any of the others do. It's, it's, it did it sort of argue with um, a guy called Swedenborg, uh, uh, yes. Emanuel Swedenborg, who's a Swedish mystic just before his time, to explain why Swedenborg was wrong. But in doing so, he explained what he thought. And it's funny and it's profound and it's full of incredible... There's a whole section called The Proverbs of Hell, which is a really interesting little... Um, little lines that would work great on Twitter. He would be brilliant on Twitter. <laughs> combination of images and, and and slightly aggressive pearls of wisdom. Yeah, the magic of heaven and hell, I think, is a really 
interesting place to explore. I also love that you mentioned the Ancient of Days because I am holding your book in my hand right now, and that's what um, I have on the American cover at yes, least. That's that's right. That's right. Which I have to say, the moment that I received uh, alert about your book coming out from your publishers, I immediately wrote back and said yes because I want to know more about Blake. I want to read this book, and also the cover is fantastic. So a good bonus yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's that. There's something about him, isn't there? There's a mystery there, there's an enigma, but we're drawn to it. It, it. Something resonates in it, and it's hard to say what it is. So, yeah, I hope, I hope a lot of people feel that inside them, feel that it's worth making the effort to dive into Blake and to, to explore it. Because I think it, knowing about Blake genuinely improves your quality of life. I, I think it makes life better. I think, as I, I mentioned off discussion earlier before we started recording, that it's a book that I think, and, and Blake is an artist who I think sticks with you. Once mm. you learn a little bit more, it's like he's invaded my brain in the best way. And I keep yeah. mulling him over when I'm reading about somebody totally separate. Like I mentioned, talking about Leonardo and and Van Gogh, it's like all of a sudden William Blake will pop into mind. So I, I want to thank you for helping him find an entry point into my mind as much as anything else, but hopefully oh, our... that's lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. There, was, there was, before the pandemic, there was plans for a major Blake exhibition to tour, and I think it was going to be in Los Angeles first, but it may, it was going to go around America, and I, I don't know what's happened to those plans. <gasps> but if it comes off again, it's if, if it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance, I just hardly recommend moving heaven and hell to get there. <sighs> I agree. I wish. I hope that happens. I hope it's something that just got put aside briefly and that it is resurrected very soon. So, mm. John Higgs, thank you so much for being on here with me today. I wish I could talk for another hour with you, but I highly recommend your book and I highly recommend Blake in general. And thank you so much for sharing his life and his work with us today. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Oh, my gosh. It was a pleasure for sure. Thank you, listeners, for listening to this bonus episode of Art Curious. If you like these interviews and want me to carry on doing them, please let me know. Reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at ArtCuriousPod or visit our website at ArtCuriousPodcast.com. I do have a few other interviews scheduled for this spring and summer, so check back here soon for more. And in the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>